That's a Lori song there. She meets the Lord in the garden. All I ever meet in the garden is bugs. <laughs> and all kinds of goodies like that. Our amen section is going this morning. All right. One of my goals in retirement uh, was to take another run at the second coming, just uh, personal interest, something I wanted to do. And I try to shore up some holes in my thinking and uh, uh, just play with it because of probably the day and age that we're living in and all that was going on. It's just a personal thing. I wasn't doing it to uh, put something together to debate anybody. I'm long since past debating that sort of stuff. And I had really no intention of uh, preaching on the subject either, you know. Uh, so uh, I was just enjoying the slow process of going through it again on my own. I uh, did a study of Ezekiel with uh, Pastor Chad Chadrick, Chadrick and uh, uh, it was really good, and uh, I enjoyed it. And then I went back through uh, Timothy Paul Jones's stuff that I had done before to kind of look at all the views. So I was just kind of you know working my way through again, looking at it, just just thinking about it, and uh, it just hit me all of a sudden, and I don't know why, but I decided, you know what? I've never done, this is an approach I've never taken to this. I said, I'm just going to go back and look at the Gospels, and then I'm going to try to find everything that Jesus said about the Prusia, about the second coming. And I said, I'm just going to go there and look at it, see what Jesus nailed down. And then I thought from there I would take off, and if I found something that in some view somewhere I thought disagreed with that, then I would scrap that. And if I found something that just really didn't say you know, that Jesus didn't seem to address, that I just kind of shelve that for future meditation and pondering and uh, see what I came up with. Of course, I've already started with a preconceived idea. Anybody that approaches this is going to do that. And so I was trying to step back from that preconceived idea that I had and just let the words of Jesus speak to me on this. And that's a lot harder to do than you think it is. Uh, maybe not. Uh, if you have no ideas about it at all or haven't studied it, it'd be pretty easy to step into this, but I've done just enough to be confused. And so at any rate, that's kind of what I was doing and I was in this process. And so um, you're going to get some of the overspray of that this morning because when uh, Asa got sick this week and this is what I've been doing, and I thought, well, we'll just talk about this this morning. And so uh, I've got two sermons scheduled that I'm supposed to preach in March. And I thought this will make a nice little three-part series, and so that's what I'm going to do and uh, uh, continue to work on it as I go. So really, you know, I'm a lazy kind of person, and because of that, that's what you're getting this morning. Rather than try to do something new, I just jumped into where I already was. And the Lord didn't check me on that and tell me, no, you can find a better agenda than that. So that's where we're going. I think that I've landed on something that I believe is, is at the heart of our Lord Jesus when it comes to the second coming. And I think you're going to land on that too by the end of this, and I hope it'll be something that really encourages you as we go through this study. And I uh, really had never looked at it quite this way before. What is the heart of Jesus when you look at the second coming? Let's start in Matthew, the 24th chapter. <coughs> and let's read the first three verses there. And I'm going to be reading out of the NIV. I'm going to read a lot of material this morning. If you don't have an NIV, um, 
then it may be more confusing for you to try to keep up. I know when I'm reading from my ASV, which is the one I like to use whenever I'm building theology, and somebody's reading out of another translation, it confuses me. And so when I get to these big passages, if you have a different translation, uh, I'd encourage you to just put it down and listen. Because I, I want you to hear, and, and even if you have the NIV, just listen. I guess I want you to kind of hear what Jesus is saying. And just, you know, if you, if you just hear it as we read it, as we're going to look at it here in a minute, it will just speak to you. And I think that you'll be able to very loudly hear where Jesus' heart is in this. But, so, but let's just start here. Uh, Jesus left the temple and he was walking away with his disciples. And they came up to him calling his, his attention to the building there. Of course, the temple structure was amazing. And uh, it was impressive. And uh, Jesus was not impressed. He said, do you see all of these? Jesus said, truly I tell you that not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And then from there they went up, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to Jesus and they asked Him privately, tell us, they said, when will this happen? Obviously, that is talking about the temple and what's going to happen where there's not going to be one stone left on another. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, originally when I read that, I thought that was two questions. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? But as I went back and looked at that, studied in the Greek, uh, it's inconclusive as to whether the disciples thought the coming and the end of the age were the same thing or not. And so some scholars and commentators have uh, addressed this as two questions, the temple and the end of the age and the coming, and some have addressed it with three, and you'll see the way they break it out in their answer. Since they didn't know, and since all would agree that it's not conclusive as to what's going on here, I just didn't make a conclusion on that, all right? Uh, because I'm not smarter than they are. I just tried to back off of that and let Jesus' words speak in whatever way I could hear them. Now, I want us to skip from here down to verse uh, 36 of chapter 24. And I'll come back to some other bits and pieces in this. But that little section right there in between uh, is one that we find a lot of debate about among scholars and a lot of different things that you can read in the commentaries about that section. And we end with it sometimes. We stop here where no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And that's kind of where we stop that passage. But there's a whole bunch more that Jesus goes on to say talking about his second coming here, or the end of the age. I'm just going to put them together for our purposes here this morning. Okay, so if you look all the way through chapter 25, and uh, the last part of chapter 24, Jesus is still addressing this question. He's talking to them in terms of, of parables. He talks about the people in Noah's day. He talks about a thief in the night. He talks about a faithful and wise servant. He talks about ten virgins. He talks about a master who goes away and what his servants are supposed to be about. And every single one of these is talking about the end when Jesus comes back. And we don't really look at them that way. We don't read that. And so when I just let that speak and I just read through that, I could come away with volumes that I could tell you about the end whenever the Lord Jesus comes, just from reading those parables. And also, as I read through that section, I came away with a, a, a new understanding of what Jesus was about all of this. And it took me back to that other passage, and I looked for it, and I looked into it in a different way, and I was pretty convicted by all of this. And so I'm hoping that 
I can stir you up with the same kind of conviction this morning. You may be living, loving, and so faithful that it's not a deal, but you know, for me, it was. So let's just read through this, and I want you to just hear it. And if you have an aha moment in there, circle it, write it down, and say, oh yeah, that's something, yeah. And you're going to walk away, I guarantee you, with some, some things that you can say, this I know will be in the end. Some of those you already know, but you may find some new ones. I certainly did as I read through this. So just listen to it. This is Jesus speaking. Just listen to what He's saying and see if you can't find something you can nail down here. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of God, nor the Son of Man, I guess Jesus, but only the Father. We already knew that. Everybody knew that, right? Everybody's asleep? (laughs) Okay. I'm assuming we all knew that. An amen means yes, a this means yes. A uh means you didn't know, okay? All right. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, right up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Well, that's how it's going to be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be out in the field, and one will be taken, and the other left. Two will be grinding with a, uh, with a hand mill, and one will be taken, and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Now, I underlined that, because after reading this many times, I found that statement repeated many times. Keep watch, because you do not know what day your Lord will come. But understand this, that if the owner of the house had known at what time of night that the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have let not let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Have you seen that before already? Who then is the faithful and the wise servant whom the Master has put in charge of the servants in His household to give them their food at the proper time? It'll be good for those servants whose Master finds them doing so when He returns. Hmm. I tell you the truth, He will put them in charge of all His possessions. But suppose that that servant is wicked, and he says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and to drink with drunkards. The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware. And he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Are you getting some things nailed down? And at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. And at midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are are going out. 
No, they replied, there may not be enough for us, for both us and you, rather. Instead, go to those who sell the oil and buy some for yourself. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived, and the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Kind of sounds like the ark. Let the others also, later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the doors for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Again, it will be like a man who is going on a journey, who calls his servant and entrusts his property to them. To one of them he gave five talents of money, to another he gave two, and to another one. Each according to his ability. And then he went on a journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once, and he put his money to work, he gained five more. Also, the one who had two gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off. He dug a hole in the ground, and he hid his master's money. And after a long time, the master of the servants returned, and he settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the five, and the master said, uh, and said, You trusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. And the master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many. Come, share in your master's happiness. And the man with the two talents came also. Master, he said, You entrusted me with two. See, I have gained two more. And the master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the man who had received the one came to the master and he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. Now see, here is what belongs to you. <clears throat> the master replied, you wicked, a lazy servant. So you knew I harvested where I had not sown and gathered where I had not scattered seed. Well then, you should have taken my money and put it on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have at least received back the money with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and the one and he will have an abundance and whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the peoples one from another as a sheep separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came and visited me. And the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothing and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? <coughs> and the king will reply, I truly tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. 
And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Are you getting some theology here? Some thinking straightened out. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will answer and say, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison? And we didn't help. And he replied, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. <clears throat> if that's all I knew about the Lord's second coming, that's enough, isn't it? That pretty well lays it all out. So any aha moments? What would you say the heart of Jesus is on His second coming? When I read that, what I only thing I heard loud and clear was be ready. Have an expectation and be ready. Be ready. The bridegroom, the master returning, people in Noah's day, unexpected. There seems to be a demand here for some perseverance on the part of the saints. So the heart of Jesus seems to be a, warn, a word of warning to the disciples and to us that we would be ready, that they would be ready when He returns. It's not so much, it seems like, with Jesus about the when and all the things leading up to it as it is being ready when the sky breaks open, right? Now, if you agree with me on that, then it's going to logically lead you to the next question, or it did me. Okay, so I want to be sure that I'm ready. What does that look like? And that doing what He wants you to do. You're going to see that in just a second. Any other comments? I want you to look now back at Matthew, the 24th chapter, the 4th verse. And I'm going to uh, skip around a bit. I'm going to read verse 4 and 5, and I'm going to read verse 9 through 14. This, I think, in these verses can sum up what the being ready you need to be involved in to be ready, okay? And it's also written in such a way that it's a pretty strong warning. And I included verse 4 and 5 because it kind of sets up why the word of warning is needed a little bit. Here we go. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. Now, remember, deception is something that happens to you that you don't even know is happening because if it, you knew it, it wouldn't be deception. I hate that word because it means that I could be fooled and not even know I'm fooled. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Now drop down to verse 9. It says, you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Now look at this, and at that time, 
Many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And then he says, many false prophets will appear and deceive many. Many false prophets. We got false messiahs. Now we got false prophets who are going to deceive many people. And because of the increase of wickedness, that's certainly not happening nowadays, the love of most will grow cold. The love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony of the nations, and the end will come. So Jesus gives us a heads up. There are really three groups that he talks about here. Two are groups I don't want to be a part of. One is a group I want to be a part of. I don't want to be a part of the group that is turned away from the faith because of deception. And there's a lot of deception in our world today. I don't want to be a part of the group whose love has grown cold because of the wickedness of the world. There's a lot of wickedness in this world today. And then there's a group that I wanted to be a part of, the one who stands firm to the end who will be saved. Is that not the heart of what Jesus is saying here in this passage? Being ready, being faithful, what to avoid, what it looks like. Man, He's laying it out. So I, I, I just think that when the heavens break open and Jesus comes back, the first question is not going to be, did you get all the steps right along the way so that you knew I was coming at exactly this time? It's going to be, did you love me? Have you been faithful? Are you persevering to the end? That's what it's going to be. That's our call. That's our challenge. That was the thing that challenged me. Has your love grown cold? Has your faith faltered? Are you persevering to the end? Well, that immediately made my mind go to 1 Corinthians 13, 8. And I know you're thinking, Rick, too much scripture. Okay. I'm just, this is what my study was. Okay. You're just getting it. Okay. I just went. I, my brain just went there. Yours probably already has too, some of you. So let's read it. 13, 8. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they're going to cease. Where there's tongues, they're going to be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it's going to pass. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away those childish things, childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. And now I know in part, but then I'll be, I shall fully know even as I am fully known. Now get this. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Do you see why I thought of that passage? Faith, you're going to be found faithful. Hope, talk about it in a minute. Love, Jesus said that, right? What about these three things? Well, it's talking about all kinds of things that are going to go, Pfft. they're going to be gone. But these three are going to remain. And the greatest of these is what? Love. Are you getting a pattern? I was, and I read that, and I thought, hmm. So where does hope fit in there? Hmm, that's another sermon. I'll hit on it briefly this morning, but we're not going there. You say, well, Jesus didn't actually say that. No, he didn't. Read those parables again and think of them in terms of hope and see if you don't see it. It's there. 
Jesus said in Luke 18.8, He said, uh, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Many are going to turn away from the faith. We must be alert that our love doesn't grow cold and that our faith doesn't falter. I think if your love grows cold and your faith falters, your perseverance and your hope is going to go right with them. Okay. The first thing that we need to consider then when we think about the second coming is where our faith is, where our hope is, and where our love is. When Jesus returns and asks, where is your faith, what do you want? You want to be able to stand up and raise your hand and say, over here. When He returns and He asks and is looking for that love that hasn't grown cold, we want the embers of our love for Him to be so vibrant that He can come over there and and know that His heart is warmed because of it, and He can warm His hands to it. That's what we want. A love that is alive. A love that is, is drawing and calling. I think of it whenever I go away somewhere, and Lori can't ever go because she's got this altitude thing and has to stay home. Her love follows me the whole way, and she's ready whenever I walk back through the door. Hadn't always been that way, but you know, uh, it is now. We are talking the other day. We were, we were just coming back from the coast and we were talking and we said, and this is, I'm going to kill myself time-wise. But anyway, we said, what do you think was the best time that we've ever had in our life looking at him? We went back, oh man, with some great kid moments, you know, we had some great seminary moments. But we decided the best time of our life is right now. It's amazing. You just grow and grow and grow and what God gives you is richer and richer and richer. And I wouldn't trade any of that for where we're at right now. Oh, there's a love there that we haven't had before. Something that what? That is strong and warm and powerful. And when you're at distance from each other, it calls. It calls wanting to be rejoined, right? That's what we want our love to be for the Lord. And it doesn't matter what the delay is. It's not going to destroy our hope. We want a faith and a love strong enough that our hope is never destroyed. Okay, so let's, let's do a quick run through of, of these of these three, and then I'm going to end. And I mean quick. This is an overview of what we're going to look at in the next couple of messages. Let's take faith. For faith to exist, it has to have an object of faith. The object of faith has to be accurate, it has to be truthful, and it has to be able to deliver. Or else you're not going to have much faith. You trusted traffic lights to get you over here this morning as an object of faith, believing that they were true and accurate and would keep you from having a wreck. It's a very simple illustration. <coughs> but when we put our faith in the Lord, we're trusting Him as the object of our faith. We're trusting Jesus, His Word, His work, His redemption to deliver us safely into the Father's kingdom. And in this passage, we see here some faith killers that could destroy this for us. What? False prophets, false messiahs, lies, deception, a delay in His coming. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, it says in Proverbs. Those things could cause us to lose faith. Will he find faith when he returns? These are things that Jesus addressed in what he said and what we have just read. When you think about the second coming, these things should be the first things that we think about, the very first questions that we ask. Why? Well, because we too could be tripped up by false prophets. We could be deceived by false messiahs, by lies, by deception. 
If we're not careful, if we're not alert, if we're not on guard, if we're not vigilant in these matters, as He has delayed, we could lose faith. Second thing that, that we'll look at is love. Faith and hope are going to get one sermon together. Love's going to get the other one. You say, well, why does love get the other whole message, Rick? You've got three here. Why does it get it? Because of the greatest of these is what? Love. Love never fails. Because God is love. Because Jesus was and remains a living demonstration, extension of, and exact representation of God's love as it reaches out to all mankind. It's really to this that we're called to be faithful to the very end. And I want to be careful with this. Started not to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. And I'm going to qualify it so that you know. But God's business is, is the business of love. God is love. And as His children, our business is to be in the business of love as well. And I hesitate to say that. And I think sometimes it's a terrible description of God because it's not a business for God. It's a nature for God. It's a character for God. It is who God is, along with some other attributes too. But I think it's an accurate statement to say God has been and is love and is in the business of love. And understanding that is huge. And we, once we get the understanding of it, then we're in a position to be able to give that love then and be in the same business of love that He is. Let me read you a verse again, Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God, therefore, one of my favorite verses, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice unto God. That's a beautiful picture of love and how it worked with Jesus and how we're to receive what God gives us and how we're to live that out to the world. Love starts with responding to who He is who first loved us. And then as we do that and understand that we're dearly loved ch children of God, then and only then are we in a place where we can live a life of love, loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. That has to be a part of it too. Lori and I are going through a little book, um, The Love Dare. Nobody please give me another book or tell me anything's good. I'm already going through five, and uh, I'm adding a sixth, I think, this week. Yeah, I mean, we're, but my daughter, she came home, she wanted this book, I guess because her marriage was suffering so, uh, but at any rate, <clears throat> she wanted this book, and so uh, we got her one because it's something we had. I don't know where she got it. I think we finally ordered it or whatever, but she started going through this love dare, you know, thing built on the little movie that was made. And any of you familiar with it? Okay. Well, one of these days I'm going to do a Bible study on it and just take people through it. It is fun. We've had a ball with it. Well, she was doing it and she was liking it so well. And Lori was saying, you know, we were wanting something to do as a couple to kind of work through together in retirement. We hadn't landed on that yet. She said, so let's do it. Okay. So anyway... I ordered the books. I jumped on it. I ordered all of the books. I got the video. I got everything. We started the process. And I have dearly loved the process. So this is just one of those little uh, words, one of those little quotes from this. It says this, If God is the greatest object of love, then awaken to the priceless purpose that you have been given. 
you are wired, commanded, and invited to do the greatest thing in the greatest way for the greatest one. There is no higher calling than to love. That was per- worth the price of the book right there. Me. Isn't that good? The love of most will grow cold. Not me. I don't want to be there. This is the higher calling. This is where I want to live. Listen, when he returns, the question won't be, did you get it right? Did you get the millennium right? Did you get the rapture right? Did you get the thousand years right? The question will be, has your love grown cold? Whatever your theology about the second coming is, if it doesn't include this, it's messed up. Because this was what was important to Jesus. And this is love. The love for God. To keep His commands and His commands are not burdensome for us. Oh man, I can't wait to talk to you in the love sermon about all the stuff that I've just been seeing, that God's been showing me. If we're going to live this life of love as God wants us to, we're going to have to love others as ourselves as well. In 1 John 4.20, he says, whoever claims to love God and hates his, his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I find it interesting that Jesus identifies the reason that the love of most will grow cold is because of this increase of wickedness. Increase of wickedness, I find, is something that makes me draw back from people and not want to love them as I think God would want me to. And it's a new way of thinking about it. Not just the infusion of the wickedness into us, but our reaction to a wicked world that makes us kind of recoil so that we're not loving the way we should. These are the things that I'm going to look at in the next few sermons. kind of leading into hope, I want to give you one more thought to ponder. As I looked at love and the business of love and how love works, a thought came to me. I don't know if I got it in a book. I don't know if it was one of the five devotionals I was reading. I don't know if it was just an epiphany from the Lord. Who knows? But I have a thought. And I never had an original one in my life, so it came from somewhere. But every time we fail to keep His commands, it's a blow against love in our lives. And if you think about this, if you disagree with this, ponder this. Everything that you've ever done that hurt, truly hurt your spouse, I'll bet you money was something you did in disobedience to God's command. So if we're going to live a life of love, we're going to have to hone in to the Lord's command. Finally, hope. Your hope as your faith is founded on your understanding of God, who He is, and what He can deliver. The bigger your God, the bigger your faith, the bigger your hope. We've talked about it all the time. But hope has a one plus to it, I think. Hope, if it is to thrive, thrives on the promises of God that we cling to. And your hope is only big as your promise set. 
you got married. And he said, till death do us part. If you just claim that one and nothing else, you're not looking for much. And some of us do that with God. And God's made us a bunch of tr promises, and he's trustworthy, and he's going to fulfill those promises. And the husband who comes along and makes many promises and fulfills those promises, he creates trust, he creates hope, he creates something in that relationship that's missing. If the only thing she's looking for is death do you part, as compared to all these promises that have been made and fulfilled. God's made some incredible promises, and if we will just learn those and hold on to those, we can have an incredible hope. What kills hope? Unrealistic expectations. We need to know the difference between our wish list for God and God's promises, don't we? Because He surely will deliver what He has said He will deliver. Not necessarily what we want. And we want what we want, when we want it, the way we want it. And so when he delays, what happens? <coughs> Our hope fails. Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. When we're through with this little mini-series, I hope that if anybody says anything to you about the second coming, that the very first thing that will come to your mind is, has my love grown cold? Will I be found faithful? And have I given up expectation and hope? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the moments together to look at what you said about your coming. Get us back on track in a world that is bombarding us with stuff to get us off track. Keep us on track. Stir up the fire again in our heart. No matter where we're at, Lord, fan the flame that we might just come alive in you. And Father, help us to increase our faith, our knowledge of you, our understanding of your promises, and to cling to with an expectancy that the sky could break open and our Lord could return tomorrow. And to live as a faithful servant before you, anticipating the future as the wise virgins, virgins, and Lord, just being ready for our future with you. Commit it to you, Lord. Speak to our hearts as only you can. We love you. Amen.